Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. So we're still on holiday, aren't we? But doing these sort of um, greatest hits of rock tours as we mosey along the promenade or sit in our deck chairs. Well, that's right. And I mean, they are getting in. A, they do break up the afternoon sometimes. But um, I know they stopped you getting that uh, Macintosh wallpaper that you found in the market. <laughs> yes, that lovely uh, sort of figure of the frog made out of shells, which I coveted for a long time. Do you know, I've got to tell you, my summer holidays when I was a kid, and I know because today is icons of the 80s, and we'll be talking about that later. And I'm sure anyone who loved the 80s pretty much grew up in the 60s right and my holidays in the 60s were going to south end for the odd day or or canvas sands or one of those sort of east english seaside resorts and we would pile into my dad's ford poplar with my nan stuck between me and martin at the back (laughs) all the windows would be wound up and my mum my dad and my nan smoked non-stop all the way down we were just sort of went down in this fug it was pretty disgusting and my nan whose bladder was quite weak i have to say as well as having bad legs i don't know what that means but we were told it was bad legs yeah, it's got bad legs would would have to stop every 20 minutes half five, an hour five miles yeah there were no service stations in those days it was, and it was my dad had to sort of escort her to a bush at a lay-by <laughs> where she could empty her bladder Wow. Yeah, there were just those things by the road where you could get a pie, weren't there? And a cup of tea. You tell that to kids these days. Do you know what I mean? Well, I used to, I had quite a funny one near here recently because I used to go, we used to go sailing in Hollyhead. We used, I used to sail it. my little mirror dinghies. Yes. Because my uncle's family were from up there. And that was all very jolly. But then when I was really little, my sister and I used to get sent to this place called, it was called Children's Seaside Holidays. And it wasn't flash or anything. It was for sort of, you know, urchins from London. And it was some school that you during the holidays, and it was down. It was just outside Worthing, and then to have all sorts of kiddie activities and stuff. In fact, my sister went back and worked as a sort of one of the supervisors later. Got a red, a red coat. 
But I have this memory of it as this huge, amazing Gothic house with massive grounds leading down to woods and everything. Where And this magical time, because, you know, we were all such little kids and you could run for miles and everything. And then a few months ago, I was stuck in traffic on the A27 and I suddenly saw something Abbott's, the school. I thought, oh my God, that's where I used to go. That must, I'd love to go and look at it again. And it was during the holidays. <laughs> so I drove up to it and it was a house. It was basically, it was this little prep school. It obviously has about 50 kids in it. It was just a house. I mean, right. talk about, you know, it was so much bigger back then. It was literally just a house. But were you ushered away as a sort of fearful old man who was, who was kind of <laughs> yeah. peeking around? <laughs> Do you have a bag of boiled sweets in your pocket? <laughs> Werther's Originals. Werther's Originals. So, yes, today is 80s icons. And, uh, you know, listen, this has been an impossible choice, right? I mean, we're going to have to do a part two of this later on in the future when we're having another holiday break, I'm sure. Cause yeah, yeah, we'd have to do, we should almost do it by year, don't you think, Gary? Uh, it's, I mean, Rick Astley is going to be on. Belinda Carlisle, Andy McCluskey, someone from Spandau Ballet called Martin Kemp. Can I just say something about that? You know, what's really sweet is ever since we started Rock on Tours, Sky, my stepson, and he was only like 13 when this started, and he religiously listened to them, which was really sweet of him. And I once asked him, I said, what, what's your favourite? Because, of course, it doesn't mean anything to him. None of these people don't mean... They mean nothing. Nothing. And I asked him, well, what's your favourite one? And he just went, Martin Kemp, because <laughs> he's a brother the one thing he could relate to was there's someone talking to their brother. Really? Really? He should <laughs> yeah. he should tune into the Sparks one. Right? There you go. Two brothers interviewed at the same time. Anyway, that's all coming up. We're beginning with Jim Kerr, but we'll talk about that in a second. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found... Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. Yeah. When we were Recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! So, Guy, you know, the thing is about the 80s is that they began in the 70s, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, there's two, there's always. I, I do know what you're saying, but there's. Yes, they did. I mean, I guess they. These artists, careers. These. These artists' careers, but there's always that thing, isn't it? Decades never start at the start of the decade, musically, certainly, or culturally, generally. You know, the 60s started in 1963. Well, 63, you know, it was was the Beatles, the Stones, um, JFK gets killed, Martin Luther King speech, right? Yeah, and uh, in a way, and, and in a way, they ended in sort of 1972. Yeah, yeah, because 73 was, was Bowie. And, and yeah, the well, seventy two was glam, and everything. Yeah, that's when yeah, that yeah, yeah. all turned out. Yeah. So, but so, what are you saying? You're saying the eighties started well, when the eighties sort of started around nineteen seventy eight, I think, with the electronica of the Human League, and you know, this is when clubs like Rum Runner and the Blitz were starting to go, and and I guess it sort of slid off the back of Bowie doing 
low album and and the electronica that Bowie was getting into and Bowie looking at Berlin. Um, yes, and no, I mean it's also we could debate this one for hours. I would say it kind of started after the first slew of post punk albums. Because to me, it seems like Joy Division and everyone, that's still very, very firmly 70s. You know, it's New Order is the 80s. Yeah. But so. if, if you speak to an American, American, it would probably be 83 with the beginning of MTV, right? That's true, yeah. yeah. But I mean, America with America, it doesn't count. I mean, it was quite funny because if you look at, you know, punk basically started in, I mean, apart from the New York punk, punk really started in America in 1993 with Nirvana. Of course. You're right. Absolutely. So a good example of what I'm talking about is Simple Minds. So Simple Minds were making music in 78 and that was being played at the Blitz Club by Rusty That's Eagle right. and that oh, would yes, have been influencing so me. That, yeah. <clears throat> so did you feel influenced, Gary? Do you remember? Do you feel influenced? Do you remember thinking, oh, what's this influencing me? I probably felt out of my head at the time. <laughs> 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 On things illicit. You were never out of your head. So Jim Kerr. Uh, here he is now and uh, I think we, you know we're going to go back to the beginning and what inspired him and uh, all that sort of stuff because the beginnings are always our thing aren't they we do love a good beginning we love a good beginning origin I story love because that's where you learn the stuff you didn't know Jim Kerr first of all the first thing I love the word aspiration we were aspirational why would we not be I mean why, why would you want to limit what you perceive as the potential in an idea or why would you, if you're going to form a band, why would you not want as many people to hear it as possible? Why would you not um, want to play all, all over the world? We had that kind of desire in us. It took us a long while to work out how it would happen, but you got to start with the aspiration. Otherwise, where are you? But I, I was talking about this yesterday. There was something about that period. I, I mean, the question I was being asked, if you look at the social backdrop in that period, the early 80s and stuff, you know, a lot of the UK was in fire, you know, minor strikes, Toxta, Brixton, poll tax. Northern Ireland. You know, all of that. And we were all kids from, you know, a certain class. But at the same time, it wasn't that we were immune to that or it wasn't that we didn't think that was worthy of our attention. But there was just something going on, this desire to kind of create your own world, to invent yourself. And whether that was you invented yourself by forming a band or making a movie or becoming an actor or, or starting a magazine that's called The Face. A couple of years earlier when the whole punk, let's call it explosion, a corny word, but in a way it works. Okay, that already seemed a long, long time ago. But I think in that explosion, when the walls came down, people believed, you know, we actually used the line in the song, Promise You a Miracle, anything is possible, everything is possible. And we believed in that. And I think that sense was coming through, perhaps in the music. It's that yep. that you're maybe pinpointing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that album, obviously, uh, again, talking about influences, you know, Bono, I think, admits that, it, you know, it, it was a big influence on Unforgettable Fire. Yeah, that was really nice of him to say that. Really nice, because I, I love my guys, even the old guys. I still love them. And I felt sometimes they didn't get credit that they deserved. So that was really good. But as, as I was saying earlier, you know, I... I think we were all feeding off each yeah. other then and, yeah. and listening at the same records and so on. There was a moment, wasn't there, when sort of Simple Minds and U2 were sort of mentioned in the same breath and there was a, it was like 
and yet looking back now you're so completely different apart from i guess the kind of celtic and religious imagery and definitely and i, I mean i love this i tell people this this story where when you talk about aspiration so all my mates loved you two and my brother had got to see this band and stuff i charlie and i had met them and it's kind of bed and breakfast way way back in manchester and remember that show lift off with Ashia? Oh, with yeah, Ashia, yeah, yeah. yes i think someone will tell you differently but i think that was you two's first uh, appearance on british tv bowie's first appearance doing ziggy stardust apparently well there you go sorry starman starman yeah go 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 <laughs> we were in manchester uh, supporting magazine i think but we had already a you know a couple of tracks so and um Charlie came up to me and said, that's these young Irish guys, young, we were only 18, there's these young Irish guys downstairs, and they, you know, they love the band and stuff, come and say hello to them, and I said, yeah, okay, and he said, but i got to tell you, they've got weird names, and, uh, <laughs> and I can't remember their fucking names, um, so, you know, just you introduce yourself, and I remember going down, and I mean, Larry, the drummer, he looked about 14 and mm -hmm. stuff, so anyway, we were always touring, we never ever got to play with them until years later, but we watched their amazing success, and then so finally, we come to this as a sort of a double header in the Belgium festival where on the first day we went on after them and the second day they went on after us. I think they just had the great success with war in um, America and they just literally came back that day. And my brother, everyone said, this band's mind-blowing, you know, this, Jesus, good luck with them and all that stuff. So we stood at the side and we watched them and they were really, really good, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> and we went on and just, um, you know, I was like Vox Amp and all that. What's this? We went on and it was just one of those days where everything worked right. The sunset during big sleep and all that stuff. And it was like, job done. Amazing. <laughs> so I didn't get the chance to talk to them that day. So next day, we went on first. Went down a storm, job done again. And then I stood at the side. I give them a second chance. It's like one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. Of course, what, <laughs> what had happened was they just got off the plane. They were knackered. And they were really, really good, but they weren't like mind-blowingly good. And, but the next day, it was a long old drive back to the hotel that night. It was just tail yeah, between our yeah, legs. Yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. and the greatest thing, after talking to them afterwards, it actually became friends and you know if you remember that time there was still the thing with the clash and all that so bored with the usa mm -hmm. and anyone that was seen to be trying to break america you know persona non grata you there they're the sellouts all this stuff well theirs was this band who had like really done it and they were saying you know you should do it you just do it you know just go for it if you want to go you just you have to tour and tour and tour but really the thing i want to say and it really sums them up even then so when I tell people that story about the band and 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 um, I've seen them that night, people say, "Did you know then that they would become the biggest band in the world?" I said, "Yeah," and they say, "But how did you know?" And I say, "They told me." <laughs> <laughs> Bono is still telling people. <laughs> that's how. That's how. That's how confident they were. And I thought, I mean, people might make us saw that arrogant. I thought they were like yep. biggest band in the world. 
you should go for it as well. Jim, I thought it was fantastic. And so what you do, Jim, was amazing, is that then for America, you could not be more in the centre of mainstream American culture than being in a John Hughes film. I don't know if you know the story of that guy because we turned that down like yeah, 19 we, times. Yep. Written for Brian Ferry. It's written for Brian Ferry because, funnily enough, it was after that that I was working with Brian. That's why he brought in Pat Leonard to write and record because he suddenly realised he turned down the big American hit. I think what must be hard for you is, you're, you know, you've been a, a, a band that writes all their own stuff and suddenly you're being given a song written by someone else, a great song, you know. Is gonna, I mean, I heard the demo. The demo's out there on SoundCloud or YouTube or whatever. And... That must have been a tough choice. Of course, yeah. it's one you're glad you made, but what went through your head? You're right. For a band that did their own stuff, plus as well, you know, those days, NME and all that, credibility mm. was everything. You, you you know, we had created our whole thing and we were halfway through writing what would be our next album and we were excited by this thing we had up our sleeves called Alive and Kicking. And But what, what happened then, going back to record companies again, in this case... Very unusual. Record companies very rarely say we blew it. But the American record company came to us because they didn't promote New Gold Dream. They didn't promote Spark on the Rain. When I say promote, I'm talking Which about Which is nuts when you think about it. It's nuts. They just didn't. Whereas we had success everywhere apart from there. But really there, it really was about the spend. And they weren't spending. And they came to us and they said, because college radio, all that, it had all happened. And they came and they said, look... I'm paraphrasing. We blew it. Your next record's going to work here, but it's some way off. We told them that. We're only, and they said, there's a buzz right now. There's this thing called the Breakfast Club, and there's this, you know, for you to be in that, it would keep that going and blah, 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 blah. And we were like, yeah, 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 great, 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 great. And they went, okay, we'll send you the song. And we went, what song? What song? And they went, oh. <laughs> Oh, well, there's a song, and to make it worse, they said, <laughs> talk about people being crass, there's a song, you'll really love it. It sounds just like Simple Minds, and, yeah. and, um, which, you know, was like, um, annoyed us even more. So we were like, no, nah, we're not doing it, we're not doing it. They sent us a film, couldn't make head nor tail of it, wasn't exactly Citizen Kane or The Godfather or... <laughs> or, or you know, it wasn't um, any of the arty films we would go and see. And um, He'd already done Pretty in Pink, and he? he was a sort of established teen film director. Yeah, but we, we were Hughes. unaware of any of that. Absolutely unaware of that. Heard the song. Finally, you know, the, there was one guy in a record company who had our ear and we liked him. And he said, listen to the song he sent it. And to be fair, I actually thought, it sounded more like a psychedelic furs song, which is, as you see, they already yeah. done song. And I like the psychedelic furs, but the thing more than anything was, it just wasn't the kind of lyric I would write. I would write, do forget about me. I wouldn't be this. It just wasn't the kind of thing. So, and we thought, I've got a live and kick him. We'll get sanctified. We'll get all the things she said. We'll get, you know, I mean, some movie, who cares? And then what really made us jump was um, the writer-producer, Keith Forsey. He was yeah. coming over to England. He, although he is English, he lived in the States. He was coming over to England. And the, the premise was, um, Keith would like to come and say hello. You know, maybe you'll do something in the future and all that. And we were like, sure, you know, great. And he came. And 
you know, it was like when your kids, you know, when your kids used to go out to play and you meet someone and within two days they're your best mate. We just loved Keith. We loved his whole... And he was George Omaroda's drummer. Wasn't he? he was. <laughs> he was. And we just... Who then produced Ice House. So. And Billy Idol. Yeah. And Billy, yeah, and they were great, great records. But we already wanted to work with Jimmy Iovine. You know, Jimmy was yeah. Billy yeah, Idol and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, Love yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But Jimmy worked with Patty Smith and Bruce Springsteen and yeah, Tom Petty. Tom Petty. I thought we'd learn a lot more. But the record company weren't wanting Jimmy. They were wanting Keith. Keith was a man, a man of the moment. Anyway, we loved Keith. Then rather cleverly, he said, "Like you know, why don't we give it a go?" And and um, doesn't work. It doesn't work. You get the record company off your back. And if it does work, um, who knows? So we went out for an afternoon, a studio near Wembley, and um, not to take away, because the song is the the song, but Charlie came up with the intro, mailed the whole thing. We were trying to work out an end. We couldn't have an end, so they've done this breakdown thing. I had no words. I sang this la-la-la thing, and... You know, I'll write words to that. I'll come in tomorrow and do it again. Next day, they were like, no, 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 you're not touching that. Rick Astley. Rick Astley. What an amazing journey that is from Teen Pop Idol to, to kind of, yeah, to National Treasure, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, Glastonbury this year was, you know, he gains all the credibility he wants. You know, he gets up and he plays drums and he, he gets up with the Blossoms. And I mean, the, the guy is kind of, he's sort of taken everyone by surprise in many ways, hasn't he? You know? Yeah, but there's this lovely thing because there's a real coolness that was clearly always there. But rather than pander to anything, he's just done his thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, he took. And it's he, almost like the world had to come round to him. He took us by surprise, didn't he? Because one of the sort he of. He took you by surprise. It was, uh, I had to revive you. <laughs> one of the touchstones <laughs> of our show seems to be, you know, prog, right? It gets mentioned every now and again, doesn't it? And we never thought we'd hear prog from Rick. We actually said, I seem to remember in our intro, one of us actually says, we can safely say this is one episode where the word prog won't get mentioned. And we did, straight away. Yeah, first thing. What was the first band he went to see? It was... Camel. 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 I mean, none more prog, I mean, none, right? <laughs> none more prog. <laughs> anyway. Fairfield Halls or something. So this is Rick, and I think he's going to be talking about, you know, working as a T-boy for um, Stock Aitken and Waterman. For Stock Aitken and Waterman, yeah. And uh, just, just, you know, sort of putting things away. Yeah, and, helping pack the fair light, yeah, watching the yeah, track get put yeah. together, all and that stuff. And then all of a sudden. Anyway, let's hear what Rick had to say. This is back in um, April 2022. Rick, when was the first time you heard that backing track? For never going to give you up. I mean, oh did, was that well, literally the first thing you ever sang for them in the studio? No, not exactly. No, um, we we tried a couple of different things. I sang. They were doing some songs for a film, a British film that didn't really happen to be on. I didn't really go anywhere, and I sang a song on that called Modern Girl. I think it's called. And again, I never sang it publicly anywhere. I just sang it. You know, they just sing this will you? I did. Dump. That's it. It was a bit of experience. I also did a, a track that I sort of co-wrote with two of the younger guys, the, the kind of like second team, if, you, if, if that's not the right way of putting it, but whatever, a guy called Phil Hardy and a guy called Ian Kerner, oh, yeah, who yeah, went yeah, on yeah, to yeah. produce, yeah. produce yeah. loads of records. And Phil mixed so many of their records and was a massive part of giving them their sound, to be fair. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we I did a duet with a girl called Lisa. And again, Waterman's idea behind that, I think, was with no disrespect to Lisa, but because obviously I was signed to them, was that we're going to get Rick's voice in clubs and they just, they don't know it yet. 
so it'll be there and DJs will go Mm. well played that record it only came out on a white label there was no pictures there was no what have you so I had done a couple of little kind of testing things but RCA I think were just getting the ump because they sent some money over you know (laughs) many moons ago and had this kid signed and thought well when are we going to get to hear something and I think Waterman was under a bit of pressure and we tried a couple of things I sang a cover of uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which ended up on the second record, like a, a sort of totally slowed down version of it. Again, I think that was a tiny bit like, well, Paul Young's had a big hit, but we're doing a ballad version of, why don't we try that? Anyway, so we tried a couple of different things, but the first time I heard Never Gonna Give You Up was really weird because Phil Harding had been kind of brought in to be a sort of programmer to the, to the building to some degree, I think, to Matt and Mike, but also to work with Phil and different things. Um, so Ian Colonel comes in. I literally help unpack the Fairlight that Waterman had mortgaged whatever wow. it was to buy. I literally helped him get it out of the box. He was a coffee addict, Ian, and I'd always have the coffee on for him because I was being like a tape up tea boy as well. You know, I ran around, got the sandwiches as a bunch of other kids did, and you know, one of which is still one of my closest friends today. Um, it was it was amazing to be there. To be honest, it was amazing. They were making hit records week in, week out. And as young kids, I just thought that was happening in studios everywhere. I just thought, well, you know, well, if you go to these other studios I've heard about, that must be... And it wasn't. People were in there making an album for four months that didn't see the light of day. And these guys were <laughs> kicking them out every week. Anyway, I'll get back to Never Gonna Give You Up. So Ian was given this room down in the basement. Nice room, but down in the basement to set up as his programming suite. So he gets it all running, he's playing around, he's got a few things on the go, he's got a few, you know, external keyboards, all the rest of it. It was early, early technology. Um, Mike Stock comes down, sits at the keyboard, puts the chords in to Never Gonna Give You Up, sings in the melody. I think maybe um, Ian might have noted that melody down and whatever, just so he knew what he was working against. He's kind of singing the melody to me, Mike, a little bit as well. But then told him what he wanted, how he wanted it, had some ideas for this, and do do we want it to be a bit like this, and maybe a hint of Philly strings, and this, you know, you know, Mike Stock, by the way, take nothing away from Mike Stock or Matt Aiken. I've worked since with a lot of people who are great musicians and very, very, very together people. They were incredible, I think. They were so, so, so underrated at how great they were. Um, but anyway, um, so then Ian starts to build Never Gonna Give You Up. And I'm sat there getting the biscuits and the coffee. <laughs> and and I just sat there on his shoulder just watching him do it. I'd never seen a fair light before. I had no idea. It was just, it was mind-blowing technology, as you guys, I'm sure, used them and yeah, back yeah, in the yeah. day and all the rest of it. It was a whole new world of making music with a computer and in a computer. But, and again, Ian is is one of the most gifted people I think I've ever seen. He's just incredible, Ian Kernel. And that's the strings thing and the brass, I think, is Ian and... To me, it's such a massive part of the song because when those strings come in at the beginning, it's just like, boom, you're off, you know? I was Go just going to say, there's a, something, and this is annoying because I could have researched this easily. I didn't have time no. to listen through to everything. Sure, of course. Because <laughs> isn't there a song on the, another song on your first album that uses the same backing track or it's the same thing backwards well, or something? Well, I don't, know whether it's, I don't know whether it's exactly on that, but obviously being, having been a tape op, i.e. getting tapes ready, putting them on the machine for a session and all the rest of it, because they use they use pretty much the same equipment all the time, like the same drum machine, a Lin 9000 as it was in the day. And they had some samples going even at that point. You could trigger samples from delays and all that. I'm sure you know all about that. Um, and they could do, you know, but they had, a, they had, they were building their 
format, if you like, you know, and they had certain keyboards that they trusted and went to, like a DX7 obviously was the bass sound and, yeah, and yes. just stuff that they used. And um, so when they put on a, a, a tape, if it had like a 116 or 120 BPM sort of drum thing, and they go, well, let's just start with that. And right. and the fact that that might have been someone else's record last week, who, who knows? Right, <laughs> Maybe right. Pete would, would so, pick what about the, what about form, kept what about, form records, wasn't it? What about the lyrics? Kind of. Were they coming? Did they sort of come out in the room to, uh, at the same time? I don't know whether Mike, uh, Mike and Matt and Pete. I don't, I don't know whether they'd written the lyrics at that point. I don't know whether they. I've got a feeling they had a rough idea of the lyric. Yeah, I seem to remember him singing it like a song, but don't quote me on that. You'd have to ask Mike. Stop. But I think. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't know whether it's like 100% fully formed, but then what, what used to happen, although, and the way I did all mine, and, and I observed other people doing it, even though we were always cleared out of the room when people did the vocals, but you're around it enough. Mike Stock used to just sit you down at the desk, he'd put the track on, and he'd just sing you the song like three or four times. And you'd sing along with him, and then when you weren't getting it quite right, he'd sort of say, No, 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 when you get to the middle, it's, you know, whatever, and give you a little. Then they'd send you in the booth. And then he'd, he'd work the shit out of you. Because <laughs> the secret to this song and why it's still long lasting, I think, is it has a really light up tempo, you know, sort of dance soul thing going on mm. that we've heard we've heard a lot of times. But then this voice comes in that's got so much gravitas, confidence, mm. and depth. Not not like anyone else in Britain singing at that time. I Thank mean, you. certainly not like Pete Burns or and, but, and, yeah, or, or but, you I know mean, Jason or any of those. Yeah, I mean, but I also think... it's a perfect chorus. It's the, the it's the the words of that chorus are a perfect list, which they is why it's been it. so brilliant to use. I remember like people do jokes in election manifestos, like vote for him, yeah, yeah, yeah. or you could vote totally. for Rick Astley because he will never give you up, let Absolutely. you down, run around, or just say, you know, it's a perfect... Totally, it's become, it's become so, another thing on the internet, obviously, but yeah. but I think, I to be honest, I still feel this today, I think I got the best song Stock Aitken Waterman ever wrote, and obviously other artists have their right to, to disagree with me, but I think that's the best one they ever wrote. And, yeah, yeah. Um, the syncopation and, and I, in the chorus is great. Just It's, it's just... And I, well, I also think what's kind of interesting, because to put a bit of flesh on it, so we, so they did that, and they've got it all going, and at some point I go up and do a vocal on it, but believe me, it went through so many changes you would not believe. So if you oh, listen to the baseline of it, love it's to hear like, an early one. Actually, probably it's fast. To be honest, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because, yeah. well, because as you get older and you just you know. Um, and I've met Ian a couple of times at gigs and stuff, and I don't know whether he ever took home a cheeky cassette at one point, but. Um, but so the bass line is very much like a song called Colonel Abraham's Trapped. Uh, trapped. Yeah, yeah. Which, funnily uh, enough, Trapped was uh, that Colonel Abraham's track was produced by Richard James Burgess, who produced the first two Spandau Ballet albums. Oh my word! Honestly, wow, that's incredible! Yeah. Yeah. Wow, crazy. And crazy. was in was I mean, obviously which is why Gary's now suing you. Yeah, and was, <laughs> and was in Landscape, was which was an electronic yeah. kind of jazz wow. sort Einstein, of band. Einstein and Go. -Go. Yeah, yeah, Einstein I remember. Go -Go. I remember Landscape. And, yeah, and yeah, we're way yeah. ahead of the game on right. electronica. Wow, incredible! Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't realize. I, I thought that'd be like some Chicago sort of whatever no, sort yeah. of hip hop. You know, we're crazy. But it's. I mean, I love that record. It's a great record, and I, and I do think to be fair to Pete. Um, Waterman that is I think he he did want to make a record for me that he knew I would love I think that was a big a big part of it for him was that he wanted me to sort of feel that I could go out and sing it because 
I was green as grass. I was really quiet. I was pretty shy, to be honest. I felt completely out of my depth. I'd never even spent time in London before, never mind in studios and everything. And I kind of feel that they messed around with that song so many times you would not believe until they came up with the version. And I know since that Mike and Matt weren't completely convinced that my voice on that record, or any kind of record, to be honest, that it was just a mismatch. It was like, what are we doing? This kid looks 11 years old. He's got reddish hair. He, he, what, what, how can you do We can't release this. What are you doing? You know, and, and interestingly, it went to number one. And the week it went to number one, we made the video for it. So the only time people saw me was on top of the pops. In, in, in the couple of times I went on top of the pops to try and get it up the chart, as it were, right. obviously. So if you hadn't been, and I know everyone watched Top of the Pots, but if you hadn't watched it, you hadn't seen me. Yeah. So, right. I, and I don't know whether that was on purpose, but we're talking about RCA Records here and we're talking about PWL. They'd had a few hits by then. They knew how to do it, yeah? And yeah. I'm like, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, you know, they've just thrown it out and we'll see what happens. And it just went boom and, and they weren't but, ready for it. It's like, we better make a video. The one thing that always sprung to mind with me with that video is it's, you are literally, it's like you're doing a next catalogue shoot. Well, all the clothes in it are mine. All the clothes yeah, in it are mine. Right. I haven't got any money at this point, obviously. And I, this you is know, the raincoat and the polo neck, right? The they're raincoat. all mine. Yeah, they're that, all that's... mine. All of it. Every single item of clothes. I turned up with a hold all with clothes in it and went, well, what do we do now? And then but they that, say, that's Stand... three strong. That's three strong looks, Rick. Come double on, denim. Double that. denim. Double, yeah. uh, what happened to that coat? Have you still got it, Rick? No, it drifted away. I've told this story before. It, um, <laughs> that's right, yeah. I, did a, I did an outside broadcast in Northern Ireland. Uh, with um, Eamon, um, too much coffee this morning. Presents on the morning show, you know. Eamon, Holmes. Eamon Holmes. Holmes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holmes. Of course, yeah. Lovely fella, lovely fella. He was doing a radio outside broadcast there. And the record by this time was like kicking off big time. So we were kind of getting mobbed, both of us, you know. And before I know what I'm doing, my jacket's being pulled off my back. And it's like, it's just drifting away. I can just see this raincoat going. I'm like, over the crowd. <laughs> I bought that. Who's and, got it? Um, yeah. And I have no idea. Somebody in Northern Ireland. It's in, someone, it's in someone's grandma's. Um, oh, so and, it, should um, v, it should be in the V&A. Well, I there mean, you I, go. I have one of those coats because Mick Jones wore one with BAD. It was, right, it was okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, I think money allowing, I think I could have really got into clothes, I think, at that age. But we didn't have any money. So we just kind of emulated what we saw in in the cheapest way we could. And and um but what I still can't believe now thinking about it and talking to you guys is that we went to make a video and I had no idea what was gonna happen. Not not a clue. Not and like it, well, here's the treatment, here's the this, is it that. It's just turn up because I think also because that record took off so quick it was it was ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. Do you know the video gone past a billion views? guy for never going to give you up has gone past a billion views i'm trying to impress you you're, you're looking oh sorry i don't know if you uh, are we on yeah, we've come back <laughs> did you weren't you listening oh, to sorry, rick sorry. He's, we've... that is amazing do you know what for some i completely zoned out because when you said the rick, they're never going to give you up video i suddenly sort of went into the video and suddenly remembered oh yeah it's the ultimate next catalog shoot uh, have it? you still got your dirty mac <laughs> Because that's basically what he's wearing in it, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Although that was quite a cool thing at the time. Remember, Mick Jones wore something very similar with BAD. Yes. 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 Very, very good. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christ, you're do you know, Yeah. 
<laughs> so, you know, I was talking about, we were both talking earlier about how the sort of 80s started in the 70s. And that's really true of our next artist, isn't it? Absolutely true. Because, uh, of course, Belinda Carlisle was with the groundbreaking Go-Go's who were kind of, you know, breaking down barriers in the 70s. But And then, yeah, she became a sort of very much definitive of that 80s pop. Yeah. I mean, she's hanging out with Terry well. Hall. They And Madness, they did a whole kind of UK tour. They were sort of like a UK band. I think they were more famous in the UK than they were in America, weren't they? That's right, yeah. Anyway, so, so I mean, she, going on, she makes some of the most incredible records of the 80s, obviously. What I particularly like is the story behind Our Lips Are Sealed. Ah, do you? Is that in this clip? It better be. The early, very early punk days in LA, there were like 50 kids and I was one of them and everybody we knew was in a band and they were horrible. So we thought, well, we can be in a band and be horrible too. And it was kind of cool to be horrible. So um, that's how we started. And, and um, you know. Let's just go back a little bit. Let's go back. There is one question. Because also there's the thing of information back then because now everyone knows it's because you would have been just getting NMEs that were three weeks old or something, wouldn't Exactly. You? Well, in high school, we used to go to the local record store and, and buy NME and Melody Maker. And, you know, we were like just, you know, uh, mesmerized by the early punk movement, the Sex Pistols and, you know, Sham 69, all those bands back then. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of... Um, you know, that was that was it for us. I think we were all influenced by the scene in L.A., but it was DIY from the beginning, you know, and and uh, we were very much influenced by that by that scene. I think for the Go-Go's, especially the Buzzcocks and more melodic punk bands. But I mean, that's how it all started in L.A. And, and for us is if it wasn't for. Well, for me, if it wasn't for Iggy Pop, which I saw, you know, in high school, seeing the uh. cover of Raw Power. I just, you know, kind of freaked out and discovered this whole new world of music that wasn't being played on the radio. So that that was in high school. So um, but because it was funny for us, I remember when we first heard of there being an L.A. punk scene, it was way after there to us in England. It was like, you know, you're talking about school kids who have cars and swimming pools. I know. What are you complaining about? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I know. It's it's funny because I think that every uh, punk scene around the world had a different sort of, I don't know, uh, vibe. And and in Southern, growing up in Southern California, there was not a whole lot to be angry about. So, you know, there was all that faux anger, of course, and early go-go songs, and and but there really wasn't anything to be. Um, pissed off about at the time you yeah. know and new york was more sort of junky dark undertones detroit was very working class you know hardcore la was there's a lot of art infused into the early days and it was a lot more sort of effervescent i mean there's faux anger of course but at the end of the day it was it was pretty sparkly i'd say that's that's how i would describe it Sparkling. But also, yeah, because if you look at you, you, you're absolutely right on the art front because the LA, looking at it now, all the LA stuff had in terms of like graphics and how people looked was a lot, you know, it was leaning right. almost more towards what Gary was about to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> more well, new, it was, yeah, it was colorful, you know, I mean, it was, yeah, yeah there's a lot of, a lot of art um, that was going on in Southern California besides 
outside of the music was sort of infused in the music. So it was different. I knew at the time, I think we all knew that we were a part of something very special. And then I think what changed for us and and that whole game was, you know, Ginger came in early. She was there in the early days. We opened for Madness at the Whiskey in, um, I don't think it was 1980, I think. And then they invited us to go to the UK to open for them. So yeah, we did. That's this- the thing that's amazing. Oh, and the God. turning point. Well, and because was <laughs> your manager, she sold everything, didn't she, to get to she sold. That. She pawned everything. Because back then, before the age of information, you could just write letters back home and say you were big stars and people believed you. There was no other reason, <laughs> you know, no reason to say, to think otherwise. So we were sending letters back home and, you know, we couldn't afford to make calls. And saying, you know, oh, yeah, it's great. We're big successes. Ginger, it was a nightmare that those tours were fun, but they were really hard. And but they. Was that, so was, were they separate? Sort of, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, were they separate? Because you, you toured with the specials and Madden. You did the Seaside right. tour, didn't you? Oh, yeah, we did that with. We, and it was all skinheads and it was all skin- Larry <laughs> and. <laughs> and five little girls from Southern California. And you're all shagging and, each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit, bit of that going on, too. But. Um, it was, it was, you know, because we told everybody back home that we was a big success and they believed us, we came back to L.A. after those tours and there was, we we played our first show at the Starwood. It was like the triumphant return of the Go-Go's. Wow. And there were like queues of kids like wrapped around the block at the Starwood. And then that's what got Miles' attention, actually. And, got it. you know, we had tons of record companies come to all the Go-Go shows, uh, even from the beginning, and they would say, we can see that people love you, but we can't sign you because there had been no track record of like a mainstream successful all-female band. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? So, so there was just kids buying like English magazines, like yeah. NME, et cetera, that yeah. had read about this. And and is that where, because um, Our Lips Are Sealed was co-written by Terry Hall. I, right. you know what I did, I, and I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Uh, and and let's just mention Terry yeah, while we're here. Bless him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, well, I mean, yeah. incredible uh, performer and man as well to leave us so right. so soon. So recently. soon. Um, and, and and how did do you remember that happening? Was that with with that was Terry and Jane who wrote that right. song? Was that right. on that tour? They were at Seaside. Tour? Was it about their affair? Because they were having a secret yeah. sort of. They were thing, having a they? secret thing. Yeah. It, it's and. Um, it was a letter that went back and forth from what Jane says. And uh, after we got back to the States from, from the UK, um, Jane had just went back to her parents' house because she couldn't afford to live outside her ha- the house. So um, she put it to music. And I guess Terry did at the same time. And that was it. That was our lips were sealed. So, I mean, I really do think that that, the 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 two tone tours that we did here really changed the trajectory of the band. I mean, no question about it. Could I yeah, just yeah. ask, uh, seeing like the whole thing, seems to you coming from Hollywood and mm-hmm. to everything that seemed, you know, whatever it was to up uh, to us. What was what was England physically like to you when you visited it? Because it was, you know, it was a shit hole. It was pretty grim, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it wasn't gentrified or anything. In some ways, it was yeah. great. I mean, it. We had no money. I remember we were given like three pounds a day to live on and we had to get to rehearsal in Shepherd's Bush from we were in oh. we were in Belsize Park. We had all we had lived in this oh. big house 
And we had some of the Bell stars living there. It was a big crash pad. Oh, that's right. Oh, how cool. And like some of the models from LA that would come and they'd stay there. It was like, it was, you know, a great time, but we had three three pounds. We'd have to get to rehearsal and back for 75p. And food was rubbish then. Well, we ate we ate Nutella and, and uh, white bread and managed to gain a ton of weight. We took cough syrup to get high because uh, we couldn't afford it. Uh, Benelin. Yeah, Benelin, exactly. And, do- and I remember dodos I've, I've being the thing as well. Yes. Sending friends in to pretend they had bronchitis to buy dodos. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So it was, London was, I mean, it was expensive. It was, but I mean, honestly, we had the best time. You know, we had no money and had the best time. You toured with the police as well, didn't you? What was that like? Well, that was like taking um, five little girls who had been in just playing clubs into playing arenas. And while we were on tour, our album, Beauty and the Beat, sort of got going up into the charts. And then we knocked them out of uh, number one. And oh, well. they went down to number six and we were opening for the time. So they were very oh, good natured about it though. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard Stuart talk about that in a very, very, <laughs> like he said, they thought it was great because because it, it's that thing. It's like, yeah, you've knocked them off the charts, but they're the police. Exactly, you know? exactly. They are the police. So that was, yeah, that was traveling around the world for the first time. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I have very fond memories of that. Right, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. Time for the ad break. But coming up after this, Toya Wilcox and OMD's Andy McCluskey. Oh, and Gary's, um, is he younger, brother? He always seems so much bigger. He's younger. (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Gary, was this the strangest interview you did for the podcast? <laughs> Given you know everything about your guests. I mean, was it very hard to remove yourself? I mean, there's clearly zero objectivity possible It was here. one with the least research. Did I tell you where the, yeah, that yeah. fella came up to me once and he said, he looked at me for a bit and he went, are you you or your brother? <laughs> <laughs> so I did get confused during this because I didn't know whether it was me or my brother talking. Did you get confused? We have similar voices, I think. <laughs> anyway, anyway. No, because I could see yeah, you. you could see me. Anyway, yes, we had Martin on and he's going to start off by talking about Melchester Rovers. And do you know, yeah. th- this is when this famous comic that came out every week called Roy of the Rovers. I mean, it's gone now. I mean, of course it has. I mean, Roy of uh, Roy of Saudi Arabian football team, it would be now, wouldn't it? <laughs> but uh, Roy of the Rovers decided to sign up 
Steve Norman and Martin Kemp from Spandown Ballet. People were asking me in the street, what's wrong? Could get in the side, gal. I saw, yeah, was it, what was it like? Did they have you on the bench? <laughs> yeah, I, and, uh, I was writing the theme tunes. And uh, anyway, so it's just come out, by the way, that all of that edition of the Spandau Ballet, Melchester Rovers, Roy of the Rovers comics have all just come out in an annual and you can buy that from your local bookshop. There's, I can't remember if I mentioned this when we were doing it, but there's a little sidebar to that is um, I remember when Spandau first reformed and you had that press launch yeah. at the HMS, uh, Bel- HMS Belfast yeah. and our friend Simon Mills was there and he, I thought it was a pretty good question. He said, being as you're coming back, is there any chance that Martin might be returning to Melchester Rovers in a managerial capacity? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here he is. When Gary and I were living in Dublin, probably about, what was he, girl? About 84? Dublin. 85. Yeah, 85. And um, so this guy who who kind of like run the Royal Rovers comic, he approached me and said, would you like to play for Melchester Rovers? And I thought, what's he talking about? He was actually, he was like the manager of Melchester Rovers, which is Royal Rovers football team yeah. in the comic. But listen, it was a real honour. They put us in as a cartoon, right, until we actually got to the final of the FA Cup, which is every kid's dream. And we get to the final, and, and that weekend I remember clearly waiting for my comic to be delivered through, through the hole in the door. And uh, as it dropped in, I get it, open it up, get to the page where I'm meant to be in the final and I've been dropped. I, I was dropped because Spandau Ballet had a gig. That's what they said. Spandau had a gig. Yeah. That was the I beginning. Them up. There, a, right. But that's a great scene, isn't it? That's a classic comic scene of you facing off with Gary and Gary going, it's the team or the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's the team or the band. Yeah, it was um, the end of the band, really. Where, you know, when it got dropped for, for uh, the band, that was just the uh, beginning of the end. Let's get to the band because the, um, cause you, well, it's the makers, the gentry, the all those. Uh, because you, you were the roadie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the roadie. Yeah, um, Gary, what's going on here, mate? Well, well, this is before the makers and the gen- well, it, no, okay, it wasn't right. really. No, it was. It, well, you're right. No, you're right, guys. So sorry. No, it was that period. I mean, but you'd always been in my life, though, Mark. And you, I mean, I couldn't get rid of you. You know, <laughs> it was like mum yeah. said. Mum said like, you had to do it. Yeah, because you know, I was the second born, right? So it's always easier for the second child to come along because. You know, the older child has always opened up the doors for you, you know. So whatever was difficult for Gary, then my mum and dad were used to Gary going out to clubs or pubs or seeing bands. And so for me to come along, I could do it at a much younger age, you know. But um, I always used to try and tag along with Gary until he was a certain age. And uh, he wouldn't let me... He wouldn't let me. He didn't want me to at first, you know. Oh, he he didn't want his cool mates seeing you. Was it? That? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Were you getting all your music information from him, Martin? Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, Gary's was always until you until I think Gary was in the same band, and then the same band kind of blew me apart a little bit because that's a band called the same band. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a band. Gary's one of Gary's early bands. I bet that sounded like a really good idea at the time, didn't it? It did. It must be (laughs) a bit like a band called The Who. Yeah. Or The The. Well, it was, was, you know, uh, it was the band that Gary never admits to. That one. And uh, so... Brilliant. Thanks, Martin. Thanks. This is what we're here for. Keep that coming. But until Gary got to that, you know, we we were always... uh, we, We shared 
kind of musical tastes, I suppose, with uh, going through all the glam thing together and buying our first singles together and going up to uh, Cross Street in in Islington to on the day uh, Gary forced me to spend my pocket money on a seven inch single, you know, and. Um, yeah, because we bought our first singles together on the same day, didn't we? Well, I was going to say, because did, did you have a sort of musical awakening yourself, or was it just Gary had this, you, you just picked it all up, or, you know, you yeah. heard the stuff of Gary was listening, and you went, wow, this I, is amazing. Yeah, I think it was came from Gary. I think uh, it was the posters on Gary. Be in with your brother. Don't, you know, yeah, yeah, I think you have to remember, you know, my life was all about um, Arsenal and Bruce Lee on posters on my wall, and Gary's was all about... Uh, David Bowie and Mark Bolan on his wall. And so I used to wake up every morning and staring at them. So, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of forced, pressure, pressurised into it. But uh, Martin, do you remember the first single you bought? Yeah, yeah, it was Me and My Life, uh, The Tremolos, which I have no idea why I would have bought that record. No idea at all. Absolutely, <laughs> that's... Yeah, because I, I bought Ape Man by the Kinks on the yeah. same day. I think I just wanted to be kind of grown up with you and uh, share the experience. And I can I, I remember going home with the tremolos and being completely disappointed. It was nothing that I wanted. <laughs> but it's funny. I remember, I remember a lot of that when I was a kid. There's a thing because buying a record is such a big deal. Yeah. Right. It's such a big deal. And you have to make and you can only buy one. Right. And then it's going to be four months before you can buy another one. And it becomes such a big deal. And you're again, you get so confused. You very often end up and, and you know what the music you love is. For some reason, that seems too obvious. And you very often just buy a record. You end up with something that you. But also, <laughs> also, you become really attached to the B-sides, don't you? Because, you know, yeah. you can't, you've got to play the B-side as well to get your money's worth. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right. And that, that kind of uh, doesn't exist anymore, which is, uh, I think, is a real shame. Well, yeah. I want to I want to ask you yeah. some stuff about Spandau that from your perspective, after the we had the second album out and mm. chart number one did well. It was, you know, whatever it was, top five or something. And then Paint Me Down came out and it sort of just missed the top 30. And then I remember we were at an airport and She Love Like Diamond was the new single. And I think we got a call that it just got to number 40 something and then it was on its mm. way down. And I remember, obviously, from my perspective, I was terrified, you know, you know, I'd screwed it up. You know, I hadn't written the right song for, for the band. Well, I just wondered if you remember how you felt at that time. Yeah, absolutely. It was terrifying. Uh, I thought it was the end of a journey, to be honest. And uh, I, I, I remember I felt really sorry for you because... I knew that the pressure you were under as being the only songwriter and everybody was looking at you thinking, uh, it wasn't thinking, oh, we blame you for the song's rubbish. Well, it wasn't rubbish, but oh, people, didn't mind. Like it, right? people did it didn't work no, on didn't the radio. Work. Let's just say it didn't work. Uh, but everyone was looking at you to come up with the next thing. I don't know whether we thought there was would be a next I, thing at that point. And hang on, this is, I, I, this is your second album time. Are you both still living at home then? Uh, I was. Yeah, Gary no. just left, didn't you, Gary? No, I was still living at home because I wrote so the true up. Were you sharing a room? No. Uh, at, that, at that point, no. At that no. point, no. We were in, yeah, we've gone from sharing the room as ki as kids. And I think by the time we were 13, we'd moved into the second house that we had our own bedrooms at last. Yeah, yeah. No, because but, but I didn't leave, to be honest, I didn't leave home, I don't think, until I got the the first proper paycheck after true came out, which is the third album. Yeah. Cause I do remember writing 
all of the true album, which is which would follow that that disaster that we had with with the second album, yeah. which was kind of we kind of it was helped for us by by Trevor Horn remixing yeah. uh, Instinction, which which got went top ten, and there we were. Yeah. But I wrote all of the true album uh, in my bedroom uh, you know in when we lived at home with with mum and dad and i remember calling you in you would be the first person to hear it all Uh, absolutely it was it's one of my biggest memories uh, or one of my loveliest memories is you calling me into the bedroom one day and uh, sitting down and saying i've got a new song to play you and you played true on your acoustic guitar and uh, the hairs on the back of my neck went up and it was just like it was it was an amazing moment because it was just, I was so proud of you for turning out that song and writing that song. But also I knew it was a song that was going to save us, you know, put the band back together and put it back on the road and uh, make it last another album. My brother. Yes, there he is. My brother. Lovely man. He is, you know, that guy, you know, he's a lovely man. He's, he is a very sweet and genuine man. And he's just, he's, he's got that, thing isn't he he's that that's why um everyone loves him. yeah toya wilcox also sort of started in the 70s didn't she i mean quadrophenia that's right and also but i remember she was just sort of present for a while it wasn't just quadrophenia it was various things she was just suddenly there yeah Do you know what and I, mean? I think she's sort of i think there's a there's a moment where she's not sure if she wants to be an actor or a musician but the first time i sort of met her was 1980 and spandau played a warehouse that toya owned or rented, or she, she, it was Toy Wilcox's warehouse. And we played there. And I remember it just being chaotic. You know, every youth tribe turned up. Punks, skins, Ted's, <laughs> mods. I mean, neuromantics. We were all there. And it was quite terrifying. I remember playing on the floor because there was no stage. And I had a punk, like six inches from my face, staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder and, who that is now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, if he's still alive. <laughs> he didn't look like he no, had long... fantastic. He's probably does. He's probably a sort of, um, you know, geography lecturer at the University of Leicester or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and Toya, of course, is certainly, you know, she's non-stop working. I mean, she's out on, on the road with her husband, Robert Fripp, I think, as we speak. And they both added a very different string to their bow during lockdown with their sort of mad Sunday roast. Yeah, that's videos. Right. That's right. Anyway, let's get on. She's talking here about, I guess, about deciding whether or not to be a musician at the age of 24. Oof. Going back to your question about being an actor 40 years ago, my agent, when I was playing um, the Birmingham Odeon about 1981 with the Toya Band and with Joel, my agent arrived at my parents' house because I, I visited my parents where I came from in Birmingham that night. And she said, you've got to give this up. You have got to give the music up. You are destroying an acting career by doing this. And it's because I turned down a two-year contract at the um, Royal Shakespeare Company because I wanted to keep singing. And I said to her, I'm 24. If I don't live this dream now, I'll regret it forever. And she just said, well, you're throwing your, your life away. This is straight out of a movie. Yeah. But kid, you can't do this. No, I have to live my dream. He was American. It was that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I get what you, where you were, because as an actor, you're only ever doing other people's dialogue and you're being told how to perform that pretty much by a director. But what you were achieving as a musician, as a singer, 
was was your own creativity. And, and Gary, I'm very limited by my own creativity. It, as much as I say I live a creative life and I'm creative and I'll only do something if it allows me a creative force, um, I'm limited by my creativity because not many people have uh, an unlimited genius. So, you know, I'm stuck with being toyer in this life, but I'm insisting that I develop, I grow and I hone what I do. I'm in a slight juxtaposition because I actually love it when a direct director hands me a script and says, learn these lines, keep mm. to these lines, mm. develop the character. I love that. But there's a part of me in the music field that cannot be someone else's puppet. And I've paid the price for that because my taste, my creativity is off the wall. Uh, and, you know, I, I would love to be able to go on the road with, with Nile Rogers. I would love to be able to tour with Banana Rama and have lots and lots of fun. But I've built the path that I'm on and it's a quirky path and I accept that and I live with it. But I've limited myself, ironically, by being determined with my own creativity because creativity is not something that is available, available to everyone in an equal quality. So, you know, I depend on people understanding what I I'm trying to say and understanding what I do and accepting it and wanting to see it. There is limitations in that. You had that whole early 80s period. You did like two live albums, didn't you? And you were a, a very powerful, big live act with a hell of a band. Can we point yeah, out? Simon, Simon Phillips, Phil Spaulding. I know. And, and Joel. And that's a hell of a, that's a posh band. And, and then Nigel <laughs> Glockhart and yeah. Adrian Lee. Uh, they were a wonderful, wonderful band uh, and very, very creative. Uh, and I, I don't know about you, Gary, whether you experienced this, but one of the toughest things I found about that time was the day had 48 hours in it for the singer. So we'd get up at four in the morning, get to the airport, fly to Belgium, do a show for two hours that evening. And then at about midnight, I had was taken to a restaurant I had not eaten that day. And I'd do three hours press while the band had a meal. I mean, I, it just... Yeah, how you kept your voice throughout all of that, because that's yeah. the, you're, it's so nerve-wracking. I'm, I'm really interested in how that music developed, though, because... What you were doing, you know, when I walked down into the Blitz in 1978 or whatever it was, Billy's Blitz, you know, and Rusty Egan's playing this German synthesized music, it was quite a shock for me. I'd never heard that stuff before. But you listen back to what you're doing, and there's obviously elements of Susie that's in there, and that's sort of what well, ended up going to be sort of goth rock, you know, Joy Division. But you're using a lot of synthesizers as well. Where, how did this arrive in your life and how did you end up making those records? We were very excited about the development of the synthesizer and that this, we never got into that political argument that the synthesizer was robbing people of work, i.e. orchestras. We love the technology. We love the escapism of the sound. So who are you listening to? Craftwork. Yeah, right. Um, Craftwork, Devo, but also we were in li uh, listening to Pierubu, industrial rock. Mm -hmm. uh, our influences were very, very broad. Uh, early Human League, Martin Ware, I mean, just absolutely astonishing. Uh, Julian Cope, astonishing. And then you've got, a, 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 you know, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark broke new territory as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. We loved the synthesizer and I loved how the synthesizer 
embraced the voice. It kind of hugged the voice for me more than guitar did. But yeah, but you were ahead of the game, weren't you, with the with the synthesizer? You were doing it before anyone was. Men. Oh yeah, I like to think so, and I like to think you know I I was ahead of even when Joel and I wrote, and when we put our teams together, we weren't really listening to the people you think we'd be listening to. I, I never for one moment thought that, um, and I mean this respectfully, was inspired by Susie Sue, other than, you know, it was rare to have a woman around because there were very few women around then. Um, when we wrote, we wrote in a bubble and we tried to be completely original and certainly never to plagiarize or steal. Uh, you know, there, there was utter respect for the um, uniqueness of what we did was a respect for other artists as well. We loved experimentation and we certainly, certainly adored, you know, the new evolving culture of the keyboard. But also, you know, you were writing a lot uh, yourself, but uh, was there a problem when one of your hits you didn't write, wasn't it? It was an early song that made you, that was successful for you. I wouldn't say it was a problem. Um, when it was presented to me, it was written by Keith Hale from the band Blood Donor, who were a synthesizer band, oh, right. who were very key in the development of, of the Toya sound and the Toya band. And Keith had a song called It's a Mystery, which was effectively about 12 minutes long, with something like a, a four to 11 minute intro I mean it was all intro and the record company said could we turn this into a single they liked it and Keith and I um, went into the studio with Nick Tauber I believe and we turned it into the ABC format of writing so that's first bridge chorus mm -hmm. I wrote the second verse lyrics and I really did feel that after having this three-year career of being a very strong bombastic female in the music industry, one that never showed any weakness and never showed a kind of flirtatious femininity that I was actually putting the last nail in the coffin of my singing career. I, I, but I did it, I compromised and I did this song and I still felt incredibly uncomfortable when we were out on tour, 1981 March with the Toya Band saying to huge kind of student audiences in student union halls, this is my next single, it's, it's a mystery, please forgive me. And they why, why, why? I don't understand why that felt because it, artistically me, compromised. It was a very revealing, vulnerable, soft, commercial approach to something I'd always resisted. And I, I felt, and the big thing back then, a big thing was the politics of selling out. Yeah, yeah, of course. We never, ever release more than two tracks off an album. If you went to three and four tracks, you were robbing the fans. Um, you know, this whole selling out thing was big back then. And, but what I'm saying about It's a Mystery, it, it caught fire. And as a single, it sold so quickly that Safari Records were having problems um, booking vinyl in the factories to get the stock into the shops. And there was this whole period of seven days where, where we employed about four people in white vans to go round the record shops, take their broken stock, and they delivered it to the factories so that we could maintain the sales to get top of the pops. And they did it. 
And, you know, that song, It's a Mystery, has made my future possible. And I do recognise that. The only problem that I have with it is that I'm not recognised as having written on it. So I don't really earn from it. Um, and I just, you know, feel that my creativity and my contribution to it needs to be acknowledged uh, but I accept that we live in a world where these things happen and we live in a world where artists claim writing credits credits and they haven't written anything yeah. so you know I do appreciate that well Toya just name checked them so for our last clip let's hear from and I've got to say this really was a really delightful interview I really 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 enjoyed this one uh, from Orchestral yeah. Maneuvers in the Dark Andy McCluskey he was available as he was promoting the 40th anniversary of Dazzle Ships. Yeah, and, and there's a great story in this, isn't there? I think he talks about how Tony Wilson nearly threw out the tape. Oh, that's, yeah, it's an absolute sliding doors moment. And his wife said, hang on. Oh, let's uh, listen to this one. Anyway, so let's listen to Andy. Here he is. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, this was, this year we recorded this back in April. We ended up, you know, getting into Electronica. Our first album was coming through, you know, the Blitz Club in London. You know, and at that time, you know, being boiled had already been made because the Human League was one of the records that was being played in that club by Rusty Egan. You know, you've got stuff happening. So Sheffield, obviously, and you've got Joy Division and Factory beginning. But what was your influence? I mean, where were you pre your first electronic outing? What was turning you on? I think... I was one of those teenagers in the mid-70s that wanted to find something different. So the music I liked was, and I, you know, I talked to most people of our generation, and they'll go, yes, tick that box. So Roxy Music, David Bowie, The Velvet Underground, Brian Eno. Um, and that was, to me, everything... Lots else, of sage else. nodding happening here for our yeah, listeners. Just there's a lot of them. <laughs> Kraftwerk and Noi. And, you know, and to me, everything else was crap. That was all I wanted to listen to. And so not even an ounce of prog rock. No, no, no. I, I, by the time by the time I got to fifteen, I had decided that was completely self indulgent twaddle, and I wasn't interested in it. Um, so, so no, I, I was. I looked like a prog rocker. I had the big afro, and Paul looked like Roger Hodgson out of Supertramp. I mean, when we first started in seventy eight, <laughs> we looked completely wrong. I mean, Peter Savile, the artist, said to us. If your music sounds like the future, but God, you look like hippies. Get your bloody haircut. <laughs> so, so, so you encountered Peter Savile very early on then, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. We we got into electronic music in 1975 before we knew other English people were doing it. I would go to Liverpool with my money from my um, paper rounds. I would buy whatever was in the German import bin take it back to Paul's house because Paul had made a stereo because he was studying electronics and I only had a mono record. Amazing. So this was the symbiotic relationship we had. And we would listen to this stuff at Paul's house from 75 onwards. And when he finally got a Vox Jaguar organ and electric piano, we wrote Electricity in 1976 when we were both 16. Wow. And then we wanted to play, but we thought, well, you know, even our mates thought what we were doing was rubbish. So we kind of modified it to play with our mates in a sort of rock version of ourselves called the Id until 1978 when, as you say, we were in Eric's Club in Liverpool and we had heard being boiled because we'd saw it in the end. There was no internet, so you only got your information from the music papers. We'd seen being boiled come out, we bought that, and then we were in Eric's Club in the summer of 78 and Warm Leatherette was played by the DJ. 
And we went, yeah. what the hell is that? And I went over to Norman, the DJ, what is it? He said, it's English, it's new records, the normal. I just went to Paul, I said, right, that's it now. There is people in this country who have been into what we're into, and they're making records. We need to at least play a gig. And that's when we knocked on the door at Eric's Club and said, hi, Andy and Paul from Bandy Id, we did play here last uh, in the summer. Could we do a gig on your open mic Thursday night, you know, just the two of us um, doing our electronic music? And he went, yeah, what are you called? And we went, oh, shit, we haven't got a name. You thought you'd tell us to bugger off. Uh, we'll get back to you on that. And then we went home and invented Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark to do one gig. In, in, no one uh, invents Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. I, I've never asked anyone where their name comes from, but I am intrigued now. Why? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's go. The bottom line is we went back to my bedroom and I used to use my wall as a sort of noteboard of ideas and things. <clears throat> and we were like, right, listen, there's two of us will borrow. Your mum must have been thrilled. Yes, oh, I would the... never allow such a thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. my children. <laughs> my, 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 my bedroom was full of oil paint and airfix models. And God knows, I was just, I, mean, I had the tiny box room six by seven above the staircase. Ah, yes. Um, but it was just. Um, I looked on the wall and I, and I said, Paul, listen, there's you and me, because nobody else wants to play with us. We'll borrow your mate's tape recorder. We'll do one gig. We need a name that people go, well, they're different. Uh, so we just looked on the wall and went, oh, yeah, I was going to write a song called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. I mean, this is how freaking pretentious I was. A song called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. It was going to be war recordings and interfering radios and things. And um, went, all right, yeah, well, that'll do, that'll do. And so we went and told them the name. Listen, it could have been worse. Directly below Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was something that we could have been called Margaret Thatcher's Afterbirth. <laughs> that wouldn't have worked with it. That's a very different band. Let's talk about Winston. Oh, yes. the technical. I mean, Winston was very, you know, everyone, you know, it was in all the interviews when you first started off this tape record. That's Does right, Winston yeah. still exist? Yes, Winston is actually in the Museum of Liverpool behind glass, uh, which wow. makes me feel very old. Um, you should explain he, what he it is. Owned, yeah. Winston, the tape recorder, was owned by Paul Humphrey's mate, Paul Collister, who had set, who created a studio in his garage. So he became your manager, he, right? He became, yeah, well, of course he became our manager because A, he had a studio, B, he had tape recorders, and C, he worked for Vision Hire, so he had a van. I mean, he ticked all the boxes for an early manager, didn't he? Vision Hire. <laughs> you know, that's how you become a manager. Um, so we, we, we ended up, um, basically, we, we put a load of backing tracks onto Winston, the tape recorder, because none of our mates wanted to play with us. And we went and started playing gigs with Winston, sat there in the middle, like where the drummer would be, on a plinth with his wheels going around. Of course, these, this is the time when, you know, synthesizer music was starting to come out of the box. The Musicians' Union did not like synthesizers. No, they thought right. it was taking jobs from up from real musicians, you know, that you could have a string section on synthesizers. So they made these um, they made these stickers, big yellow stickers, called, were saying, keep music live. That's, so we yeah. stuck them on the tools of Winston so they go keep music live going around the Fantastic. But how you're saying none of your mates would play with you? That sounds a bit No, well they, they, they just thought that what we were doing was you know, they were into Genesis and the Eagles and Pink Floyd and, and we were into Kraftwerk and Noy and Brian Eno and they just they just didn't get it. No. I get, I guess the um it might if my I, my how my memory works with this one 
Human League also had a tape recorder at the back. Was that was that your inspiration, or was you the first? I no, I mean we it, for us it was just an element of practicality. I mean, apparently there's supposed to have been a long a forty year feud between me and Phil Oakey about who came first and who was inspired by what. I, I, and you know what? I didn't meet Phil Oakey in person until about four years ago. Wow. And I went right up to him and said, Phil, apparently we hate each other. How are you, mate? <laughs> he went, fuck uh, off. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing was, there's no disputing, the Human League made a record before we did. Yeah. And hearing mm -hmm. being boiled, Paul and I went, shit, we've been sitting in your mother's back room for two years. We need to go and play a gig and do something because now other people have actually gone ahead of us. So Human League's making being born made us go, right, we're going to be a band. But we had written Electricity two years before that. Electricity came out as a single. And and then we, what I think people say is, yeah, they started before you, but you had hits before them, so Phil was pissed off. And I don't really think that was the case. But but yeah, but there's there's such a fine line. It's like the history of punk in like who started first, who inspired who? Now we we played, you know, we played that club two days before you did. We're the authentic, yeah. you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the thing, isn't it? As you get older and time changes, you you forget that, that like just just how quickly everything was moving when you're young you know it's, it's like you said it's literally a matter of days between events yeah. now it's years you know 10 years well, it, it, it is at our age it takes me years that's what i mean yeah yeah but, yeah. uh, but we, we, we want to see stone though, ep epitaphs laid there don't we saying here this week a, a, a band yeah. played with a with a table yeah. what what happened was after the second gig where we went to the factory club and we met tony wilson we he he used to have bands on Granada reports. We we met him. We you know we met him at his club. Why don't we send him? Because so we sent a cassette to say, can we get on the telly? We didn't even know he was starting Factory Records. Now this we heard that there was an an apocryphal story, and we thought it well, that was all it was apocryphal. Four years ago, we met his first wife called Lindsay Reed, and we said. Is there any truth in the story about the shopping bag in the car? So, oh no, it's true. I got in the car, Tony picked me up, and there was a shop, plastic shopping bag full of cassettes sitting in the footwell. And she went, all right, love, what, what's with the cassettes? I'm taking them to the tip. They're reject cassettes of people who wanted to get on the TV or on the new label. She put her hand in the bag, pulled out a cassette and went, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, that's a weird name. And he went, oh, they played the club last week, shit. Harry Scouse's with, with electronic music, not authentic, not rock. She put it on, it was electricity. And she went, that's a hit, love. And he went, no, 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 that's a hit. So apparently taps her patronising on the thigh and goes, all right, darling, I'll sign them for you. And that is how you get a record deal. You're pulled out of the bag on the way to the tip. <laughs> it's a true story. Wow, wow. Guy, it's a real shame because the people we've missed, obviously, I mean, and everyone's going to be screaming, all these people who have got their favourites. I mean, so obviously we had Andy uh, Taylor on just recently. He, in fact, he was the he finished off our season. That's right. Kurt Smith, Simon, Simon LeBon, bon. Thomas Dolby. And do you know what I must say? That Gary Georgie, Newman. My, I was about to say, Georgie, my missus, pretty much her favourite rock on tour interview of all time is Gary Newman. <sighs> she was absolutely beguiled by him. Oh, and we've had Andy Bell and Boy George, Billy Idol, Roland Orzabal. I mean, uh, 
Well, listen, we'll do another one of these when we go on our next trip, whenever that will be. Hopefully not, uh, well, probably next summer. Could be. Well, yeah, although well, apparently the Wi-Fi isn't as good in Southend. And, and since they've thrown us both out of Eastbourne and we've been told we're never allowed to come back again, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to find somewhere else equally as romantic. Yeah, so if anyone knows of a good guest house anywhere on the South Coast... Yes. I mean, I, I hear they've rebuilt the bandstand. <laughs> Painted the wall. <laughs> oh, thank you to our producer, Ian, who put these clips together for us and has done a great job. Sterling, Sterling. For Gimme Sugar, that's our production company. And uh, we will see you next week with another best of. And I think, what is it we've got, Guy? Uh, and we've got uh, rock gods. Rock gods. We're not messing about. Right. Up to Mount Olympus we go. Are you ready to <laughs> rumble? <laughs> it's good night from me. And it's good night from Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.